0: That second reading, uh, Matthew chapter 11, in a, a little bit, but uh, our main focus is going to be on the first reading from John chapter 1. So if you want to uh, go back to page 862 and we'll look at um, John uh, chapter 1. And of course the main character in both readings is uh, this guy, John the Baptist, and, and the context of the story is that the uh, religious leaders have sent uh, a bunch of their kind of lackeys to go and ask John the Baptist, they ask him over and over again, who are you? Um, so uh, you'll see it in John 1, and they ask him in, in uh, verse 20, who are you? Uh, verse 21, who are you? And again in verse 22, who are you? And, and if you think about it, in many ways, that's quite a modern question, isn't it? Who am I? Uh, you know, uh, we're asking that all the time. Who am I? What, what is a man? What is a woman? Who am I? It, it has quite a contemporary ring to it, that question, who am I? And, and that's actually what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're, we're going to be looking at it, though, through the lens of uh, John the Baptist, and we're going to look, be looking at it through the lens of Jesus. Uh, so, so this is what we're going to be looking at. First of all, we're, we're going to be looking at how John saw himself, Uh, Then we're going to be looking at how John saw Jesus. And then finally, we're going to be looking at what that means for us. So firstly, how John saw himself. How did he see himself? Well, John was a guy who was out in the wilderness and he was a a, a preacher, an extremely popular preacher that people came from all over the place to hear him preach. But the thing about John the Baptist was that he rose in the wrong channels. He came up through the wrong channels. He wasn't educated by uh, the right people in the right way. He didn't go through the right institutions. He didn't go through the right accreditation uh, bodies to get his tick of approval. He didn't go through any of the normal channels to rise up to prominent prominence. And yet, People came out in their droves. They loved to hear him preach. He was incredibly popular and people came out all the way out to the wilderness to hear him. And And if you think about that and that element of who he was, then you know that John the Baptist was actually a threat to the system, to the institution, to all those accreditation bodies. A bit like the kind of media disruption that we see when an app comes and challenges the kind of institutional ways that people have gone about things. John the Baptist was a threat to the system of the day. And so these people who are the kind of power brokers, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, they send out some of their lackeys to him in the wilderness and say, well, who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? And, and these religious leaders, they knew that um, God had promised a Messiah. God had promised that he would send a prophet. But in Advent, uh, we remember this was a time where they were still watching. They were still waiting for this prophet to come, still waiting for this Messiah to come. And then John comes up out of the ranks in the wilderness and they send out some people to ask him, verse 19, well, are you the Messiah? And John's like, no, I'm not the Messiah. And so they're like, well, okay, verse 21, then are you Elijah? And he's like, no, I'm not Elijah. And so again, they're like, well, are you the prophet? And he's like, no, I'm not the prophet. And so like you can almost hear their exasperation by now. They're like, well, who on earth are you? Who are you? But it's really important interesting at this point to do a comparison. Okay. And that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. A comparison between who John says he is and who Jesus says John is. And and we see that in the second reading, Matthew chapter 11. And if we look closely, what we're going to see is that John, in a sense, is wrong. John is wrong. Have a look at Matthew 11. It's on page 792, and that's where we move from John's view of John to see Jesus' view of John in Matthew chapter 11. I hope you can start to notice the difference between these two views of John because in Matthew 11 verse 7, Jesus says to the crowd, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Then in verse 9, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. Then in verse 11, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. And then in verse 14, And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Any... any. Alarm bells, any any kind of discrepancies that you're noticing between John's view of John and Jesus' view of John? Do you notice Jesus' view of John is, he says, among those born of women. Is there anyone here who hasn't been born of a woman? Right? Among those born of women, every human being in history up to now, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. So you're getting the sense of Jesus' view of John, And are you starting to see the massive disparity between John's view of John and Jesus' view of John? Among all the humans who ever lived, John the Baptist is the goat, right? Greatest of all time. No one has arisen higher than John the Baptist, Jesus says, of John. And then he says, for those of you who are willing to accept it, John is also Elijah. And now Elijah was the greatest prophet who ever lived, And Jesus is saying John the Baptist is greater than Elijah. So can you see this massive discrepancy between what John says and and Jesus' view of John is so much higher and so much greater than John's view of John? Are you seeing that? Between John 1 and Matthew chapter 11. John's like, I'm a nobody. I'm not that important. So which one of them was right? Jesus or John? John? any of you who have been to Sunday school know the answer, right? But, you know, you could just run a bit of a thought experiment. Say, if people are still talking about you, your name, in 2,000 years from now, what does that make you? That makes you a VIP, a very important person. 2,000 years from now, people are still talking about you. Turns out Jesus' view of John is more accurate than John's view of John. So what's going on here? What's John missing? Uh, In modern kind of therapeutic terms, has he got self-esteem issues? Does he need to go to therapy? Does he need a little bit of a pep talk to get a better view of himself? Well, I want you to hold that thought because we're going to come back to it. But before we get there, or by way of getting to that question, I want us to look now at John's view of Jesus, because that's actually part of the answer of what's going on here with this question that I raised. Because while John was kind of vague and not very interested in talking about himself, he's crystal clear, and he loves to talk about Jesus. He's far more interested in talking about Jesus than he is in talking about himself. So let's let's see what John has to say about Jesus, because he has a lot to say about Jesus in John, back now in John uh, chapter 1, which if you're wanting to um, find the page, my clicker's not working, so it doesn't matter. But John chapter 1, let's have a look at what John has to say about Jesus. Verse 23, firstly, John says, I'm the voice of one crying out into the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now, this is an amazing statement for John to make. Who's the Lord? The Lord is Yahweh, the great I am. The one who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and who even said to him, you need to take your sandals off because the ground on which you're standing is holy. I'm a voice of one Christ. Prepare the way for Yahweh. So who's Jesus? Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is not just a mere man. Like we sing at Christmas, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Make straight the way of the Lord. So Jesus is the great I am. But then look, have a look at what he says in verse 32 about Jesus. Secondly, he says, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it remained on Jesus. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit remain, descend and remain, is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now, the Son of God in in that time and in the ancient Near East was a term for the king. The king was considered the son of God. And in the Old Testament, if you know the story of Samuel and David, you know that the king was anointed with oil, right, to symbolize that they were set apart and that the presence and the power of God was upon them to do the Lord's work. It happened to Samuel, uh, the judges. It also happened to uh, the high priests that they were anointed, set apart. And this was, oil was a symbol of the presence and power of God. And it was mediated through, in David's case, a human, Samuel. But John the Baptist is saying, no, this Jesus, he doesn't have the symbol, the oil. He has the spirit himself who descended upon him. And a voice, remember, in the other gospels that said, this is my son, my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. And in the Old Testament, the anointing came through human hands. But this came through the divine hand where the dove came from heaven and they were split and anointed upon him. This is the unique spirit anointed king of kings. That's the second thing John has to say about Jesus. But I want you to notice a third thing, which to me is probably the most striking, even though we may skip over it. And that's in verse 27, where John says, the one who is coming after me, that's Jesus. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. Now, you need to understand about sandals in Jesus' day because they were an absolutely disgusting and degrading part of everyday life. Australia is a relatively clean city, right? A country city by world standards. But have any of you went stayed in like a, a dirty city or a slum? like I have for six and a half, seven years. For any of you who have lived in that kind of context, uh, you may remember the sights and the smells and the sounds in that kind of context. And that's much closer to what it was like in Jesus' day. And they would wear sandals. The mode of transport, as you know, was sort of donkey, animals. And so there's just... Stuff everywhere that they 're walking through right, and it was just disgusting by the time they, that they walked around in all of this, and your feet were stinky filthy and disgusting. They even had rules about this back in Jesus' day, that um, if you had servants, if you were a Jew and you had servants, and if you had Jewish servants, you were not allowed to let your servants take off your sandals because that was too degrading and a disgusting thing to inflict on your fellow Jews. It was Beneath them. And so, of course, it was the Gentiles in that context who who were allowed uh, to to, to do that. And and the other rule was like um, rabbis, right? They would have, they were teachers, professors, they had their... They had their disciples, their followers, and they were kind of like servants as well. Uh, They were kind of like gophers. They would serve their rabbi. But there was a strict rule that they were not allowed to remove the sandals of their rabbi because it was too disgusting and degrading a thing to inflict on the disciples of a rabbi. And so now in that context, notice that John doesn't say, he doesn't say, I'm only just worthy enough to untie Jesus' Sandals. I'm only just worthy enough to do it. What does he say? He doesn't say that. I'm not even worthy to do something as degrading and disgusting as untying the sandals of his feet. So what's he saying? What's he saying about Jesus? And do we have that in our own mindset? That Jesus is so high, he's higher than the highest high, that next to him I'm... Lower than the lowest low. Human categories are not enough to contain the discrepancy that there is between the beauty and the majesty and the glory and the power of this Jesus and me when I'm standing next to him. That's what John the Baptist has to say about Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but normally we don't like to be around people who are so good and who make us look so bad. So um, that's one of the reasons why I got off social media. So in in my time, it was was Facebook. And for me, getting on Facebook, going through the school, it was just like death by a thousand cuts to see so many people who are so much better at so many different things than me that to some point it was, at one point, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. It just makes me feel so inadequate about who I am to to see them. Now, that's just a tiny little taste of what it's like for us, would be like for us to be in the presence of the beauty and the majesty and the perfect perfection of the Lord Jesus right we we struggle to be in the presence of perfection because we kind of base whenever we base ourselves and our identity on something outside of God what happens is that it either makes us boastful and arrogant because we're really good at that and, and we can kind of look down on others who aren't as good as that thing as we are. Or it makes us terribly depressed and insecure and kind of shrink back into our shell. So an example for me would be like, you know, they have this thing like IQ and EQ. And 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 it was like for me it was like if I were to measure myself by EQ uh, IQ sorry uh, like you know your intellect I was working with people who had like had PhDs and were really smart and and it would just make me feel desperately insecure right and shrink back into my shell and insecure about myself when you that's what happens when you base your identity on something other other than God. So what I would do is like, oh, well, IQ, obviously it's not as important as EQ, you know, emotional intelligence. And so I'd base my identity on that. And then now, good, I can look down on all those guys with, they've got an IQ, but sure, I've got a high EQ. You see, this is what we do when we base our identity on anything other than God and Jesus. It makes us boastful and arrogant, looking down on others, or it makes us insecure and low self-esteem, making us shrink back into ourselves so what about john the baptist john the baptist in the presence of jesus he's he's able to say he must increase he must increase that's good there's one point in in the gospels where they're like hey jesus is getting more disciples he's baptizing more disciples than you are and john the baptist is like he must increase and i must decrease i'm not threatened by that success so the question I asked earlier that we were going to come back to remember is why does uh, John the Baptist seem to be so down on himself? Why does he seem to have such a low self-esteem? I'm not worthy. You know, he says, I'm not worthy. I'm not the prophet. And Jesus says, he is the prophet. And he says, I'm not Elijah. And Jesus says, he is Elijah. Why does he seem to be, if it is that being down on himself, why, why at the same time as this, this is what I want to ask now, is why does someone with apparently such a low self-esteem also um, act so boldly, if you know John the Baptist, so confidently, so fearless was John the Baptist. I just want to give you a few examples of his incredible courage, his incredible confidence and boldness as a contrast to this seemingly low view of himself. So for example, in Matthew chapter 3, it tells us when the religious bigwigs come out to see him in the wilderness um, to see who this guy is who's come up through the wrong channels. In verse 7, that they're the religious bigwigs, power brokers that come out to see him. And in front of the whole crowd, John says to these Pharisees, these religious leaders, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Can you imagine? I don't know if you have a boss who has a boss who has a boss, but can you imagine them coming into the present, your presence when you've got all your homies around you, and you're like tearing them down to the ground? You see, this is immense confidence and boldness and courage. Not something that you would think when someone has a low self-esteem, right? Or a a low self-worth. He does it again even more so in Matthew chapter 14 with this guy, King Herod. So now we're talking about the political power. And these guys were ruthless. Think Game of Thrones. In a blink of an eye, they would slaughter you. And, And this was the son of the King Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus. It's Christmas time, right? He was the one who ordered because he couldn't find who this Jesus was to slaughter all of the babies in Bethlehem from two years down downwards. His dad was that guy. And that's not just to try and give you a sense of this King Herod's pedigree, right? Like father, like son. The, the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Now, there's a story in Matthew 14 where this King Herod, the son of the other King Herod, he had committed adultery. He had, he had divorced his wife so that he could marry his sister-in-law. And it was a scandal at the time in Israel. And out of all of the people in Israel, you know, know what? You're not going to challenge the king, right? Because it's off with your head. But out of all the population of Israel, there was one person who was willing to stand up to King Herod and to challenge him and say, What you're doing is wrong. Can you guess who it was? It was John the Baptist. This guy was fearless. This guy was confident. Where did he get this from? How this combination of this boldness. As well as this humility, saying, I'm not worthy. No, I'm not worthy before God. Well, I think uh, this quote from C.S. Lewis helps helps us arrive at the answer. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. There's a massive difference between those two things. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. That's when we become kind of weaselly and shrink back into our shell where we don't have any confidence, we're down on ourselves. No, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And that's John the Baptist. That's why he's so interested in talking about Jesus and not talking about himself. What, who am I? I don't know what you're talking about. I love this quote from Robert Murray McChain. Uh, He says this, and I just hope... It, it's just such an encouraging statement, especially when you are down on yourself. He says this, he says, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And for all, and for, all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God. For every look at yourself, take Ten looks at Christ. Satan wants us to be bent in on ourselves, whether it's so that we're puffed up looking down on others or whether we're down and shattered and and disabled and, and paralyzed by that. And this is what John is doing. Have a look. Uh, in, in verse 35, it wasn't part of the reading, but, but the next day he sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold. This is gaze. Look upon. Fix your eyes on Jesus. It says in Hebrews. Look upon the Lamb of God. You know, earlier I talked about how it's difficult um, for us to be in the presence of perfection because of how that kind of shows up our own inadequacies and weaknesses next to them. And, and that was true for the Israelites. They knew this was just a tiny little um, window into what it would be like to be in the presence of a holy, righteous and majestic God. They knew that they couldn't just waltz on in to the presence of God. And they knew it so well that, that they needed to be washed and cleansed and sanctified. And so what they would do to prepare themselves to get in the presence of God is that they would sacrifice an innocent and pure lamb. As if to say all of my guilt, all of my shame, all of my filth is being put on this lamb and the lamb dies in my place so that I can live. And the lamb is cast out from the presence of God so that I can be brought into this holy, righteous and beautiful king, knowing that I'm loved, knowing that I'm accepted, knowing that I'm forgiven. And so here's the thing. When John the Baptist gazes upon Jesus, it says, behold the Lamb of God. When he looks upon Jesus, I think he sees two things. Firstly, he sees the Lion of Judah. Uh, This is the lion that was prophesied in Genesis, the lion of Judah, next to whom he says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. So majestic, so awesome, so powerful is he. He's the lion of Judah. And to see Jesus as the lion is to give your ego the knockout punch that it needs so that no one can boast in his presence. To see that he's so far above you is to humble you so that you can't boast, so that you can't look down on anyone because you know this lion. That's the first thing it is to look upon this Jesus. But the second thing that he sees at the same time is the lamb, the lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. You know, last year, one of the mums at the Northcott Primary School had a lamb. She was carrying around a, a, a lamb. I've never seen it before, like a puppy dog. And it was just the most beautiful attraction. Has anyone... Has anyone seen, like, not in a farm or petting zoo or whatever, but just like in the suburbs, she had this pet lamb. And you're drawn to this lamb. It's it's eminently beautiful and approachable. And Jesus is the lamb of God who was slain for our sins. And to behold this lamb is to be lifted up out of the ashes, out of the muck, out of the mire. To know that he was slain and took our sins for us is to give the knockout punch to our insecurity that it needs. Why would you be insecure when this king would suffer and die as a lamb? So loved are you by Jesus that he would lift you up out of the ashes. And, and, and John saw both of these things as he gazed upon Jesus, the lion and the lamb. And all this is to say that when we gaze upon Jesus, it's to know that two things at once. That I'm so bad that Jesus had to die. And yet I'm so loved that Jesus was glad to die. And that does two things. It lowers you so that no one can boast. But it raises you up because you're so loved and you're so cared for. And that's what John says to us this morning. Behold the Lamb of God. You see, the Lion of Judah devours our ego and our boasting and our self importance and self-righteousness, but the lamb of God absorbed our shame and our sin and our insecurity. And there's nothing else in the world that does this, that gives you something to humble you and yet raise you up. At the same time. And it's only in Jesus that we have these things. And so I want to finish. Often we don't remember sermons. But we do remember songs. And I want to finish with a song. That to me just captures the message. Of John the Baptist today. It's written by a a group called Casting Crowns. And it's called Nobody. And I just hear the words of the chorus. um, As if John the Baptist was saying them himself. These are the words of the chorus. He says I'm just a nobody. Trying to tell everybody about somebody who saved my soul. Ever since you rescued me, you gave me a song to sing. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. I hope you're able to worship him as we watch this together now. I'm